This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And I am your venerable host, Mitch LaFawn. Yes, uh, there you go. Uh, no co-host on this one, so let me just get right into this. Joining me on the phone, it is from the band Collective Soul, the one, the only, bassist Will Turpin. And on uh, June 21st, 2019, they are releasing their new album, Blood. And of course, uh, do check that out. Lead singer, by the way, Ed Rowland. Ed, E.D., uh, has decided that he wants to be known by the uh, diminutive E. Just E. Like the TV show, or the TV uh, channel, E. I wonder if he has an exclamation point as well. It, anyway, you know, of course, a diminutive, when you have a name like Richard and you want to be called Dick, well, Ed wants to be called E. Okay. Anyway, a new album is Blood, and uh, if you're listening to it as I release this podcast, it'll be out on Friday of this week, and if you're listening to it down the road, well, it's already out, so go buy it, go check it out, head to Spotify, do whatever you do, and uh, I have to say, you know, Collective Soul is one of those bands that played some pretty decent rock and roll. They, they really sort of captured that moment after hair metal. And yes, I said hair metal. There's nothing wrong saying hair metal. And I'll get into a discussion about that in a second. But, you know, you look at songs like Shine and December and even uh, Heavy from, from 99. Really, they're, they're as rock songish as anything that came out in the 80s. So I don't know why people sort of like, oh, there's a difference between the two anyway. But uh, let me quickly get back to hair metal. Boy, people all the time say, hey, Mitch, I don't like when you call it hair metal. Or or bands will be on interviews, oh, I don't like when you call it hair metal. Oh, oh, don't do that. Really? There's an entire channel on Sirius XM called Hair Nation. If you're so upset, tell them to not play your song and then not get the sync rights and the mechanical rights and the royalty rates and the whole thing. Just just tell them to wipe you off that channel. Don't, don't put us on Hair Nation. Listen... Hair metal is a descriptor, and the whole point of a descriptor is to give you an immediate idea of what we're talking about. And when we say hair metal, you automatically know it's Poison, it's Warrant, and it's all those bands, period. And if you're branding or if you're, that's exactly what you want. You want somebody to know exactly what you're talking about it when you're talking about it. So all this stuff about, oh, you can't call it hair metal. Anyway, uh, I should start the whole Mitch ranting thing. Um, anyway, no, I shouldn't. I'm not a ranter. But this month, uh, end of June, going into July, I am going to run a Mitch marathon. I have about 20, 21 interviews stacked up and waiting for people to hear. Um, they include... Here, and I'm going to go right to my files. You can hear me go to it here. They include uh, Collective Soul. They include Connie Bloom, lead singer of Electric Boys. All hips. Hips, you know, hey. Uh, it includes David Bickler, who, of course, is the singer of Survivor and sang or was the singer of Survivor. And, of course, you know his voice from Eye of the Tiger. Uh, who else do we got? Danko Jones and Tea Party. Uh, interviews that I did a couple of, uh, well, about a month ago. 
Never had a chance to air them, so I'll do like a Canadian episode, probably on like on July 1st, I'll put that one out. I've got Bruce Watson of Foreigner and also Ron Wixo of Foreigner. You're going, Ron Wixo? Well, yeah, Ron played in the band in the late 90s, just before they disappeared from the scene, just before Lou had his uh, health issues. And Ron talks to me about this unreleased Foreigner album. There are songs floating around, and I have them, and they, they're, they're great Foreigner songs, that they were recording, and then Mick got, uh, not Mick, pardon me, then Lou, Lou Graham, got sick, and the sessions ended, and those songs have never been used. And so Ron is going to detail that. I've also got Jeff Scott Soto, who's got a new album out. We did an interview. Robin Trower, Glenn Sobel of Alice Cooper's band, uh, Mark Zavon, a guitarist who spent some time with Rat, not Rat, uh, Stephen Piercy's solo band, Adren not Adrenaline Mob. Boy, I'm having a whole time. Kill, Kill Devil Hill. Anyway, uh, we got Mark, Bob Clearmountain, David Freiberg, Slim Jim Phantom, Janet Garner, of, of formerly a vixen with her husband, uh, Joey Casada, who uh, plays with the Eric Martin Band. And anyway, I've got all these interviews, and those are the ones that are done. I've got some more scheduled coming up this week, next week, and the week after. And so I, I've just got to blow them out. So listen, I will, I will do this Mitch Marathon, considered July of 2019, Mitch Marathon Month, and you will get almost... Almost, because I do have a life, and I do have kids and a dog and other responsibilities, but you will almost get an episode a day for the month of July, and as you know, I've gone to this one-on-one -on -one format where it's just me and the artist, there's no more double episodes, there's no more 18 guests, there's no more four hours, it's me and a guest. Sometimes it'll run to an hour like I did with Holly Knight or Desmond Child or whatever, but mostly it'll be... 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and that's that's sort of the sort of the sweet spot. So you'll be getting that. And and ho oh, ho. July is going to be fun-filled. You will also get a new show on the Mitch Network. Aha. Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon presents In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Now that is going to be spectacular. Not, I mean, not that my show is not spectacular, but that's going to be spectacular. Ryan Roxy, who, of course, you know and love from The Electric Angels, that debut album back in, uh, my brain is having a, a moment, 97, 98, whatever it was, 96 maybe, that debut album of Electric Angels, brilliant. One of the best debut albums ever. If you haven't checked it out, find it somewhere. I know it exists somewhere in the atmosphere, so go find that. But you also know him from Slash's Snake Pit, early days and of course being Alice Cooper's guitarist now Ryan is going to do a show on my network where he is going to interview guys that are living the dream of being a rock star but in the trenches Phil X of Bon Jovi's band uh, who also spent some time with Triumph and also spent some time with Phil X and the Drills and I, I interviewed him in May go check that episode out Steve Brown Working man's working man has his success with Trickster, and then went off and did Dennis D. Young, and did um, uh, subbed for Def Leppard, and works with Eric Martin's band, and uh, who else? Are, well, Michael uh, Startow. Starto. Oh, Michael! 
I know you're listening and I screwed up your name, but anyway, Michael, who was with Lou Graham for seven years and then um, is doing some dates with Mark Slaughter under the Slaughter banner and has been a rock and roll fantasy camp guy. Anyway, um, Joel Hoekstra, Hoekstra who, who does Share and TSO. And it's not stories about, hey, guys, tell me about the new album you played on and the new tour. It's really about uh, being in the trenches and being a working guy and, and having to, to survive with your guitar and with your voice and with your bass and with your drums and, and just being... Anyway, uh, check it out when it comes out. It'll be labeled as, or, or it'll be known as, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon presents In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. I will put them up. I will put the descriptors. They are starting in July too, uh, in, in July as well. So you've got the Mitch Marathon, Ryan Roxy, and just a lot of interviews, a lot of content. So please stick around and and help me out if you can. Uh, when you see something on, on, the, on the socials, retweet it, like it, or if you've enjoyed the show, uh, go to your socials by yourself and, and say, hey man, I checked out this interview that Mitch did or that Ryan did. Here's a link to it and, and you know, use the iHeart link or the Spotify link or the, any one of the links to the TuneIn, Stitcher. And if you've not noticed, I have started putting up all the interviews or the audio up on my YouTube page as well. So, so there's plenty of ways to listen to all this content. So go, so go do that and share and let's, let's grow this as a community. And yes, here it is, the one and only pitch that I'm going to give you this time. If you want some Mitch merch, a beautiful raglan or what we call a baseball jersey, or if you want a classic black t-shirt, all sizes available, head over to loudtracks.com, L-O-U-D-T-R-A-X.com, and order up a shirt, and there you go. And uh, Loud Tracks is run by a guy named Nick and Nick is the official global merchandise uh, rep in Canada, and they do all the official merch for Anthrax and Marilyn Manson and um, Judas Priest and Scorpions and Iron Maiden and even some non-rock stuff like the Backstreet Boys and all that. So so it's, it's high-quality stuff. Nick does a great job, so support Nick, support me. And... Uh, Support Ryan Roxy when he's up here doing the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon presents In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Now, a, a lot of gabbing on this uh, talk up. So let's get right over to today's guest from Collective Soul. A new album is called Blood. It is W. Oh, sorry. It's the lead singer that just wants to be known as E. Will Turpin actually wants to be known as Will Turpin. But... From now on, let's just call him W. Okay, let's not do that, because that's not nice. Here is the one, the only, bassist extraordinaire. He shines on bass, Will Turpin. We are speaking with a bassist Will Turpin of the band Collective Soul. The new album is called Blood Out later this month. And uh, Will, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, man, it's you. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for your time, too. Yeah, the last time we spoke was for your solo album called Serengeti Drivers, out in June of 2018. So let's let's give that a quick plug. But um, let's talk Collective Soul and new music. You know, at this point in in a career, 25 years to almost 30 years in, 
you could certainly just go out there and do Shine and do December and do the hits and, and fill up a 75-minute set. Why? What motivates you to write new music and why is it important to have a new album out? Yeah, I mean, that's just the, the thing that's still... Playing live is definitely a driving force, and it's one thing that we thrive on. You know, if we don't play live in a while, it's something we start to crave and miss. But the other side of that coin is being able to create create new music. Um, and man, that's still just something that makes our blood flow. It uh, it's really you know what keeps us going. Um, so you know, twenty five years later, when we get together and. Ed's got some amazing songwriting skills, of course. Uh, and we get together and we, we try to make collective soul music and it's, uh, it still feels magical to us. So, and we make, like I said, that still gets our, our blood flowing and our adrenaline going. It's just, it's just part of being a, uh, uh, you know, a creative artist. It really is. So, of course, last year, like we, like we mentioned, you did Serengeti Drivers. How do you decide for you on your writing what goes into the will pile and what goes into the collective soul pile? Do you write sort of the same way, or are you writing completely differently, and it's very obvious which one goes to the solo project and which one goes to the band? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the original inspirations are sometimes different, because a lot of the stuff I do with my solo material, it's, it's going to start off uh, with me on a piano, kind of just uh, being more... Um, more organic with, with the way I create some of that stuff. And then with Collective Soul, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I'm going to create is going to be more, I need a drummer with me, you know, I need like a a guitar riff and, and stuff like that. And, and then I can, you know, focus, I like to focus on the Collective Soul a lot on, uh, on the, on the rhythm section stuff that me and Johnny do um, and make sure it sets up the, uh, sets up the song right. Um, and, and like I said, with my solo stuff, I, I start with melody and, and an idea for a song. So it's kind of two different approaches, but I don't, I don't sit there and go, well, this song, that song goes here or there. Just, they just come home naturally. Yeah, they, they do. And that, that, that's sort of, I guess what, what's great about it, but uh, also, and I'll move on from the songwriting in a second, but this far into the career, do you, when you sit down with Collective Soul and Ed or E as he likes to be called now, do you um, look back at the old stuff and say, okay, we have that sound. We're sort of like ACDC. We got to make more songs that sound collective soul. Or are, you, or are you at a point in the career now where you can do whatever you want? There's less pressure from the label. There's less pressure from radio. There's less pressure from MTV. In fact, no pressure from MTV. Um, how do you sort of approach it stylistically? Do you do you break new ground or you say, hey, these fans that have stuck with us deserve a collective soul sounding album yeah i mean i think that's a, a technical that's a technical question and i i don't think we approach it i mean we we are aware of that like hey you know we don't want to we don't want to necessarily sound any any different than you know necessarily uh, than, than the collective soul we want people to recognize who it is but uh we don't really think about that quite that much i mean we really just really just try to open up our ears and open up our minds to be able to uh, understand how to make each song be its strongest uh, on a on a, on on a level that's not really a technical thing. It's it's not a sound or anything. It's just whatever feels right, you know. And it, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's, it goes. It's basically about feeling. 
And when it feels right, you kind of know it. And then, and then it's more about transcending emotion through music. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't really think about it on a technical basis. I think about it more of a, an ethereal kind of top-down uh, kind of attitude uh, where, like I said, I'm trying to just service the song uh, and serve it up possibly uh, to the best to the best of our abilities. It seems to be working and out. And of course, it's always going to come out sound in, in some form or fashion like Collective Soul. Ed's vocals are still on fire. So, I mean, you know, he's got a signature sound with his vocals. So that's always going to be there. Can I can I ask you this? I guess sort of a silly question, but you've referred to Ed as Ed twice, and he wants to be called E now. Can you sort of explain to me what that's about and and how important it is for him to be called E? I don't know. It sounds like a, I don't know. For me, it's, it's it's just something he put in the press release. I mean, he does appreciate that nickname, and that's that's what he's been putting on his guitar picks for over a decade now. It's just an E on it, and uh, and we 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 call him E every now and then, but. You know, I've known him my whole life. Um, uh, so, I mean, my earliest memories, I knew who Ed was. So uh, I call him lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, And some of it not printable. All right, um, uh, <laughs> the band, of course, is on tour with uh, Gin Blossoms. Now's the time tour. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of the live performance for the band. Because I, I come from the school of... You know, Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and, and ACDC and Guns N' Roses and Metallica and a lot of those bands, you know, their albums are good, but live, it's just an incredible other beast, Metallica in particular. How important is the live show to you? And, and is there sort of a studio collective soul and a live collective soul, if you know what I mean? Yeah, there, there really is. I mean, we don't, again, it's not, uh, it's not maybe thought about from a technical angle, but Certainly, we, we add a little I'm just bit. having a little bit of trouble hearing you, by the way. Yeah, sorry. There we go. Um, yeah, certainly there's there's a difference between uh, approaching the songs live and in the studio. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in the studio, we definitely, like I said, we got to get, we got to capture that energy and that and the vibe that, that's proper for the song. Um, and live, we're able to we're able to throw in a little more. It's not like we're playing more or trying to overplay, but you, 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 you supplement the energy and the vibe by just, you know, playing things just a little bit. It's, it's definitely we overanalyze or think about, but, uh, it's never going to be for us. It's never going to be something we feel like, Oh, we got to do this exactly like it was done at the studio. And we don't, we don't look at that. We, we go out there and we still play the songs and, and make sure the songs are the most important factor. But, they're different. Uh, some of them, you know, we add section. We, uh, we'll even do some stuff slightly differently just just because. Um, but it, again, it's because it feels right. It's nothing we've made a technical decision on. Which is good. Um, a lot has been made uh, with some of the tours these days talking about backing tracks and the importance of backing tracks and, and, and some fans feeling a little cheated by backing tracks. What is Collective Soul's approach to that uh, you know when you hear like a song by kiss like beth and they they play the violence of course it's a backing track and of course it's needed um what's sort of your uh, approach to that and and is it a necessary evil is it something that you guys do or is there no place in rock and roll for stuff that's not a hundred percent live yeah i mean for me personally i mean it's all you know when you're talking about live music and art, it's going to, at some point, it's going to boil down to a personal opinion. But 
yeah, if I see a band up there and there's, and there's too much backing tracks and they're just kind of playing parts to these, um, you know, tracks that are basically a session, eh, that's that to me lacks a certain energy that I crave or I go to find when I'm looking for a good live band. Um, so I feel like there's a line you can cross where you've gone too far. Um, on the other hand, I mean, we've got some loops and stuff that we trigger. Uh, and then, so here's what collective soul, here's, here's the thing that me and Johnny basically came up with. Um, we've got some loops and some sounds that we, we want to take straight from the studio and be able to use live. So instead of playing two tracks where we feel like we are a slave to a track and we're just basically hanging in there, everything that, um, that we do is triggered live. So Johnny's going to trigger it live and, um, it's basically ends up being a little bit more like another instrument, although it's, it is actually loops that'll be going on for, um, you know, four measure loops or eight measure loops, but we're not playing two tracks and it's always an auxiliary type sound. It's never the main meat and potatoes of what we're doing. We would never put vocals on backing tracks. We would never put, guitars or any kind of anything that we do live we would never put it on a backing track um I, I don't, it's not you know each his own i'm not gonna cut anybody down for doing it but that's not what live music was it is really predicated on it's live music is something that's magical when it's created by the same individuals on stage and and the people in the audience are part of the the magic as well it's the music and then they bring energy back to the stage and it's a it's a full circle energy transfer and it's real and uh i think you lose a lot of that when you're just standing on stage playing to some uh to, to some recordings i think it's i think it's pretty weak i would agree and and so if i understood you correctly and i think i did collective soul uses them as enhancements to the to the overall performance but you are not cheating in the sense of piping in vocals or piping in drum parts or piping in guitars. I mean, the band is live, but there's some, if you want, parsley on the plate. There's a, there's a, there's probably five or six tunes, right, where Johnny's going to trigger samples, but he's triggering them live, so that's also the difference. We're not, we're not sitting there playing to a recording. He's triggering stuff, and it's adding to what we're already doing, if, if that makes sense to you. Yes, absolutely does. Um, let me just quickly ask you about the, the 1990s and coming up in that musical environment, because you look at sort of the 70s, it was this whole peace and love stuff, and the 80s was just wild and crazy and the Sunset Strip, and then the 90s became a little darker, a little more, some people call it depressed and stuff, but yet there was some great music made at that time. Uh, how was the scene for you and doing these tours now with the Gin Blossoms and, and, uh, and other bands later on, is there a sense that this music was dark and, and, and depressive or is there a celebration going on at this point? I'm hearing more of a celebration vibe from people. People are like, man, 90s was really one of the last great generations of, of great songwriters and rock and roll. Um, so I mean to climb my son there. That's my 15-year-old son, Jude, trying to break in on our interview here. Uh, <laughs> that's okay i've got the uh, i've got the dog sitting on my feet breaking in on my on my side so we're we're even <laughs> so yeah i mean um i think i think a lot of what went on in the 90s was in reaction to too much of the 80s it was, you know 80s was and and we weren't big fans of the music 
that was uh, strictly, you know, strictly about uh, partying, getting laid. Uh, it was it was all about excess and, and who can be the craziest and wildest. Other than some other bands that were that we were into, that was you know kind of considered alternative in the eighties. It was the U twos and REM uh, stuff like that that we were attracted to in excess. Uh, they were singing about real things, and and I think the '90s was a little bit of reaction to too much of the, of the let's sing about how to party and get laid kind of thing, and and then so you saw people in the '90s start writing songs about real issues and and real deep, um, um, you know, deep themes, um, and and of course the whole Seattle thing is, is its own thing, and it's it was huge, and I'm a big fan of it, uh, and some of that was dark. But in the same breath, they, it's not like Collective Soul was dark. It's not like Dave Matthews was dark. It's not like some of the other great bands from the 90s were dark. It, there was a lot of great rock and roll going on and uh, a lot of different styles. So, you know, as, as popular as grunge was, no, nah, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't all dark. I mean, Collective Soul, is, we're always going to have a positive spin on things, even if we're talking about a dark subject. I agree. Well, okay. So let me ask you that, uh, and I guess we're going back to songwriting for a second. But but lyrically, does a collective soul song have to say something? Does it have to have a meaning, or can you have rock and roll all night and party every day? Well, yeah, we just yeah, our stuff seems that it goes pretty deep with the lyrics. Uh, so sometimes it, the lyrics can be simple, but I can't imagine us. <laughs> I can't imagine us doing a rock and roll party every day song, even though we do enjoy that. <laughs> How can you not like Kiss? Um, coming up in July of 2019, it'll be 20 years since Woodstock, uh, 99. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that experience, because if you look at it, musically, there were some absolutely great performances, you know, from, from you guys to to whatever Clear was doing to, um, uh, who am I thinking, uh, Limp Bizkit and others. And yet there was that other side where it sort of degenerated into some violence, into some stuff, but... Overall, how do you look at the experience and that festival? Yeah, well, I mean, we we played Woodstock '94 as well, um, and we got to see, yeah, we got to actually see a great um, contrast between '94 and '99. So, um, yeah, '94 was still on like a, a farm area, all grassy. It was real comfortable, lots of trees. Um, we played on Friday night before the mud came in. It was beautiful. Us live played violent films, blues traveler Kings X played on that Friday night. That's one of my biggest influences. Uh, but Friday night was great. Uh, 1994. And then fast forward ahead five years. Uh, and they've got a little more, um, the promoters have gotten a little more money hungry. Uh, they threw all the people on top of some, you know, black top tarmacs, um, you know, charging $3 for the bottled waters. And, uh, next thing you know, people didn't feel so comfortable. And, uh, yeah, by, by, by the time Saturday night rolls around, there's, uh, <laughs> there's sires and, uh, some protests going on. Um, yeah. And for us, it kind of felt that way. 94 felt great. Felt like a celebration. Everybody was happy. And then 99 felt like, and they're lining up all the bands on big stages, and it's just it just felt more mechanical to us. But um, but they were both great festivals, and and I you know I think Collective Soul gets off stage, and uh, there's a great audio and great uh, video of our sets on on both of those Woodstocks that uh, 
that, uh, yeah, I like looking back at every now and then and checking out the youngsters. Oh, I absolutely love it too. And and when you see the 99 performance of Shine and you just hear all those people shouting it back, it, it really is sort of, uh, you know, bone chilling. It's it's a great moment. Uh, I'm going to pick up on what you just said. You mentioned King's X. I have, uh, you know, been been friends with, uh, with Ty and, and I've interviewed Doug in many times. Talk to me about what attracted you to that band because here's a band that has been around for ages and yet always seems to not get to the finish line. They're not the, the media darlings. Not, and yet bands revere them, bands love them, and true fans of, of them just, right. they're, they're diehards. What, what has attracted you to, to King's X? And, 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 and uh, also, well, I mean, their music, their music, absolutely. I mean, in, in, the, in the mid to late 80s, they, they were on MTV, and, and you're right, they were always on the, it seems like they were always on the edge of teetering right over the, break of, of being ultra ultra popular but uh it's just to me it's some of the best rock and roll ever written it's three guys it's heavy it's also beatlesy um it's also deep lyrically uh like i said that's the kind of stuff i was attracted to i wasn't necessarily attracted to uh you know girls 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 um not not that i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> not that I wasn't trying to play. But we love Motley Crue. I'm just saying, like lyrically, I was, I was, I was more attracted to a King's X. Um, that that was deep stuff to me. Uh, the Faith Hope Love record is one of my favorite records of all time. Um, and they will, they're always reviewed by all musicians. Their musician, their musical qualities, and and that, and what they did with their songs is uh, it's one of a kind. And and I understand exactly why musicians love them. I, I can't. I can't put my, you know, the details. It's hard to it's hard to describe why they couldn't break into a bigger, into a bigger, you know, fan base. But um, man, that's always going to be one of my favorite bands of all time. And, and we've been lucky enough to hang out with Doug Pennick a number of times, and uh, we consider him a friend. Yeah, he, he's absolutely great. And and I don't know why they they don't get to that next level, but I, I do think that part of it might be that they're music doesn't seem to fit in nicely or easily into a genre because sometimes I'll hear them on Sirius XM's Hair Metal or Hair Nation and I go, well, they're not hair metal. And then right. you, you put them on like liquid metal and you go, well, they're not, they're not death metal. Like, so it's sort of like, well, where do right. they go? H how do we sort right. of package them? Anyway, um, let me quick ask you because we're, we're going to run out of time here. Uh, drummers, the band has gone through a, a plethora of drummers. Talk to me about sort of changing that, and how how does that affect the band and its sound moving forward? And and what is it about drummers that just collective soul needs to change them up every so often? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, drummer Shane had, a, had such original sound, and he, he was definitely part of of our sound at the beginning. And, and the original collective soul, we were uh, we were extremely tight. We all grew up together in the same town, so. Um, and things started to get different and people grow in different areas and make different decisions. Uh, you know, that was really, uh, that's what dictated the first move, uh, for drums. And then Ryan Hoyle was a friend of a friend, uh, in Nashville. And, uh, you know, Ryan was a great drummer for collective soul. Some of our, some of our best stuff. And, and for me, uh, it, it was rhythmically, it was, a, it was the way Ryan approached music was a breath of fresh air for me and him to, to conceptualize how we're going to deal with uh, being the rhythm section. It was, it was a great growth uh, in my life musically and, and a great friend. Ryan still is a great friend. Uh, 
then Ryan, again, you know, people, people make uh, decisions about how they want to live their life and, and touring wasn't necessarily Ryan's favorite thing to do. So Ryan decided to focus on some different stuff. Uh, and he's a, an amazing studio drummer out on the West coast. Uh, he's still very successful and kicking ass. But, um, yeah, Johnny's been with us since 2012. So we're going on a pretty good run here with Johnny. Um, another great friend and another guy that I've loved to, uh, I've loved exploring how to, um, you know, approach being in the rhythm section with him. His, his drum style is, is kind of one of a kind for sure. And, you know, we make him, we, we kind of get him in the mold we need for, for the collective soul rock drummer, but Johnny's one of a kind. And it's, uh, you know, another just great musical relationship that uh, I've been lucky to, to have. Uh, but right now, I mean, as far as, you know, it's our second record with Johnny on drums and live. I mean, I feel like we're on a, we're clipping on a, on a high rate right now and on, on a, on a high level, man. So, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things that happens, man. Is after 25 years, not everybody can stick in there and hang in there. So, you know, right. Right. Here we are. And, and seven years in, I guess he should start getting nervous. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Of course. Um, <laughs> right. Johnny's so funny. He still will get nervous a little yeah, bit. But, yeah. yeah. Um, we try to make him relax. You look at him every so often and just go, you know, we've changed drummers before no anyway um just real, <laughs> real quick uh the 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 single shine and december now i know you've talked about these at nauseum over the years but i, I want to sort of approach it differently when you have two songs like that that are sort of out of the box instant classics here we are 25 years later and they sound as though they just came out this morning there's still a vibrancy there's still an energy how does the record company react after that album, after those songs come out? Do they look at you when you bring the next album in and say, yeah, that's nice, boys, but we don't hear a shine. Go write it again. Or we don't hear another December. Did, did that add an undue pressure? Was it sort of like an, a golden albatross in a sense that, yes, fans know you, and yes, there's a lot of airplay, but also, well, now we're sort of stuck having to cookie-cut shine for the next five hours. How was that played out in terms of record company politics and, and and management coming to you and saying, "Right, boys, now we need Shine Part Two? Yeah, I mean, we were with Atlanta in, in the still in the heyday of record label strength and, um, and and record labels controlling the uh, the industry. But the way Collective Soul came about with our relationship with Atlantic, we had a record complete when they signed us. And that record was successful. So we turned in the second record and uh, Jason Flom came down, but he didn't have a whole lot of input. It was pretty much, it's, it was almost like we recorded a, a, or did the first record without their input. And so they kind of let us keep doing that. And then once the second record was successful, they, they had Collective Soul in the spot in their mind where they didn't have to focus on us. We kept just sending them successful records um so they you know they were around and they gave us their input but there wasn't it wasn't like we watched them we watched them with jewel uh, and you know they controlled every little step and every little thing that happened with us um it wasn't like that with us we were a rock band and we we handed them stuff that was finished and they were good with that uh, so i think it worked out for us in, the, in that regard they didn't stick their noses in too much 
Yeah, which is good. And of course, uh, Jason Flom, for, for fans that don't know, he, he discovered a whole bunch of people. Stone Temple Pilots, Twisted Sisters, Skid Row, Hootie and the Blowfish, Collective Soul. Well, not discovered, but signed, I guess would be the better word. Um, I guess I'll, I'll end on that then. Just how important was Jason to the band's success? Because this guy was, or is, I mean, he's not dead, but super powerful and really had an instinct for picking out bands that were going to go to that next level. Yeah, is more of that kind of influence. You know, it wasn't musical as much. It was more like, uh, I'm behind you guys. And that's, you know, that was a big deal at Atlantic Records if, if Jason Flom's behind you. So he was he was behind us and he supported us. And he was a good friend back then, too. So, yeah, that, that's that's what I would say was his strongest, you know, help with us was just making sure Atlantic Records backed collective soul. He really was something. And uh, I'll remind the folks, the uh, the tour... With the Gin Blossoms, or at least certainly uh, Collective Soul, runs all the way to September 1st. You guys are playing out all summer, which is great to see. And uh, Will, thank you again. Last year we did this interview for the solo album. Now this year, uh, Blood. And uh, hopefully next year we will do something new with some new product, be it solo or band. Um, merci, as we say. In I'm show. down, man. Just you go ahead, man. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and set it up for next year, man. I'm down. Yeah, I'll <laughs> talk to Amanda now and get it done. We'll, we'll pencil it in. But <laughs> as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Uh, and it's great to see bands like yours having a career in music. The the one and done is is easy. Having a career is difficult. And so kudos to you and the guys. It's, you know, hey, something to be celebrated. Cheers, man. That's awesome. That's Cheers. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. 